I'm going to read a few verses from Acts chapter 17 this morning, the beginning of the chapter. We're going to read a few other passages as well. But let's stand for the reading of God's Word here from Acts 17. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. If you read through the book of Acts, Paul is preaching all the time. Everywhere he goes, Paul preaches. And it's interesting because he is the, uh, he's the apostle to the Gentiles, but every time he travels to a new city, what he does first is he goes to the Jews. The Jews were the people who should already know God's word because they had the whole Old Testament. The Jews were the people who should already know God's promises, who should already understand the prophecies. The Jews had the synagogues where there was the preaching of God's word, where there was the reading of the law of Moses. Now, as Paul is spending time traveling around from place to place on his missionary journeys, when he comes to a city, he comes to the Jews first. And the reason that he does that is because they can and should be allies with him for the proclamation of the good news to the rest of the world. Right? They're already nine-tenths of the way there. He doesn't have to teach them absolutely everything about who God is. The fact that there is one God, the Creator. He doesn't have to teach them everything about the Old Testament, right? So here in Thessalonica, he's preaching to the Jews and to the almost Jews. So there's this other category of people who were... Uh, the God-fearing Greeks. These were people who were not Jews, they were Gentiles, but they were God-fearing, which meant that they already also knew much of what the Jews knew, and they had almost, in some senses, uh, been ready to become Jews. They were the God-fearing Greeks. And so, as he's preaching in the synagogue, which the synagogue was basically church for the Jews at that time. 
as he was preaching in the synagogues, this meant that the God-fearing Greeks also would hear because they would attend synagogue. As he goes from place to place, Paul's message is always the same. He describes it as preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, when I talk about preaching, I I talk about preaching a sermon. Do you ever think of preaching a person? Preaching... Jesus Christ. That's what Paul does. He preaches Jesus Christ. Our lives are to be sermons. Our words are to be proclaiming Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But Paul preaches in such a way that the specific people he is addressing will be able to understand him. So, even though Paul just can summarize it as proclaiming or preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified, it's not as though he goes from place to place just preaching the same sermon over and over again. Every time he goes to a new city, he's preaching to the people in that city. He's preaching to the people who are in front of them. He's preaching in such a way that they will understand, that they will be convicted, that they will hear what they need to hear. And so when he's preaching to the Jews, he doesn't start off explaining to them that there is one God, the creator of the universe. But when he's in Athens and he's preaching not to God-fearing Greeks, but just to the regular old Greeks, right? He has to explain to them that even though they're very religious and they have lots and lots of idols all over their city, that actually there is only one God, the Creator. So Paul tailors his preaching to whoever is there in front of him. Here, though he is the apostle to the Gentiles, he's dealing with the Jews, and the almost Jews. Okay? And so, what that means is that because they have the Scriptures, because they already know much of what Paul would have to spend time telling other people, because they already believe the Old Testament Scriptures, he can simply go to the Old Testament And point out to them the places that talk about Jesus. The prophecies. The promises. The commands. The Jews already knew there was going to be a Messiah. They knew this Messiah was going to save them. That's the point of there being a Messiah. That's the meaning of Messiah. So when Paul comes, all he needs to do is tell them that Jesus is the Savior that they had been looking forward to, right? Seems simple enough. 
It's not quite that simple. (laughs) When he does that and tells them about Jesus' life, or if they've already heard about Jesus' life because stories about Jesus and his life have gone out slowly and gradually spreading throughout the Roman Empire, so they may have already heard, but Paul says Jesus is the Messiah, and they're shocked. They're not encouraged, they're shocked. Paul sees the difference between how the Jews and Greeks respond to the gospel, and he describes the response in our sinful nature without the work of God illuminating and and calling us and showing us what we need to believe, okay? In our sinful nature, he says that the gospel, this, this declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, is foolishness to the Greeks. But he calls it a stumbling block to the Jews. Different people with different backgrounds, different understandings, different beliefs, both rejecting the gospel, but in different ways, for different reasons. Here we see the stumbling block. The stumbling block is what causes the Jews to be tripped up. Right? Have you ever been walking around at night, kids, and found something sitting in the floor where you weren't expecting it, but found it with your feet, not with your eyes? It might be a Lego, and you step on it, and when you get to be my age, it'll hurt way more, a lot more weight coming down on that Lego. And you know what you do when you step on a sharp Lego block in the middle of the night? You stumble. You trip. You might fall. You might jump and hold your foot and go, ow! Well, when you're trying to run a race... And all of a sudden, somebody throws a block in front of you. You could call that a stumbling block, too. You might fall flat on your face, right? Here the Jews are. They think they're running the race. They think that they are serving God, that they're doing and understand exactly what God needs them to. And then Paul comes along and says, Jesus is the Christ. And they're like, wait, say that again. They trip, they fall, they stumble over it. And why? Why is it not simply foolishness to them? Well, because to the Greeks, it's foolishness because they're like, Messiah? Who needs a Messiah? I like my life. I'm living it. I'm enjoying myself. But to the Jews, they say, yeah, we've, we've been looking forward to a Messiah. We know there's the need of a Messiah. We know that there's this Savior that's coming. But Jesus? Are you kidding me? 
And so Paul ends up spending most of his time trying to explain two things to them here in Thessalonica. Why it was necessary for the Christ to die and why it was necessary for him to rise again. See that in verse 3? For three Sabbaths, in verse 2, it says he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Now we just finished a joyful time of celebration for Christmas, for the coming of the Christ, Jesus. And even that is proof of the fact that he had to suffer. He humbled himself, and it was humiliating to be a little baby, and not a little baby born in a castle or a palace or a nice hospital, but a little baby born in Bethlehem and placed in a manger. From the very beginning of his life, Christ's work was suffering. And in a few months, we'll come to Holy Week. And Holy Week, we really celebrate the specific fact that Jesus Christ suffered and rose from the dead. You can't celebrate Easter, which is Christ rising from the dead, without first celebrating the fact that he suffered, that he died. Today, I want us to see how we are similar to these Jews and how we live in a culture that thinks about a Messiah the same way the Jews did. A large portion of people that you talk to, around here anyway, claim to believe in Jesus and that he will save them. Right? This is not yet gotten to the point where we are post-Christian, at least in Mason, right? Maybe if we were in Boston, we'd be dealing with a different majority. But if you look up the uh, statistics for Mason, you start walking around and and talking to people, in general, you'll still find a very large proportion of people who believe in Jesus. But here's the thing. Does their conception, does their understanding of a Savior require that he die and rise again? Do we understand why Jesus had to suffer and rise again? Why would Jesus, why would the Messiah, why would the Savior suffer, and die. Before I answer that question, I want 
to point out the first similarity between us and the people around us today and the group that Paul was preaching to. We are people who have the Scriptures and ought to know what they say, just like the Jews and God-fearers had the Scriptures and should have known what they said. And I'm going to make my case to you, not using philosophy, but using the Scriptures just as Paul did. To prove that the Scriptures said Jesus, or the Messiah, would suffer and die is easy. I'm going to limit myself to just a few verses from Isaiah. 53, verses 7 through 10. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so his generation, oh, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? What does that mean, kids? To be cut off out of the land of the living. Yeah. To die. You're not part of the land of the living anymore. If you've been cut off from it, you've died. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. We're not told here in this particular passage what the sermons of Paul were at Thessalonica in the synagogues. But if he spent three Saturdays there, reasoning with them, preaching to them from the Scriptures, showing them that the Christ had to suffer and be raised from the dead, I guarantee you, somewhere in there, he read Isaiah 53, 7 through 10. You can't read Isaiah 53 without recognizing the fact that the Messiah was going to suffer. But why? Well, even in that passage... We saw little bits of it, right? For the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. But let's go back a little bit. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Just the three verses before. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. 
Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Or verse 12 from the same chapter. He himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. This is where the Jews at that time, and many people today, and probably some of us here, have a difficult time accepting what Paul is saying. We want a Savior, but not one who is saving us from our sins. And certainly not one who has to die because our sins are so wicked. We want a Savior who will save us from our mistakes, our bad choices, our poor choices, our less than wise decisions. Right? And someone who will help us to catch a break. If I could just catch a break. Why do we want a Savior who will not save us from our sins, but who will save us from the uh, the reality of the suffering of our life? Because we live thinking only about the here and the now, and certainly not thinking about the wickedness of our sins. The Jews find this a stumbling block. And people who think they are generally pretty good don't have any idea why our Savior would need to die. If we're generally pretty good, all we want is someone who will come and help make the context of our life better. So if there was more money around us, That would be great because that would save me from the difficulties of my life. As Ecclesiastes says, money is the solution to everything. That's what we think. Money is the solution to everything. People who think they're generally pretty good are going to stumble when you tell them, yeah, the one who came to save you, you want a savior, right? Yeah, yeah, I want a savior. Yeah, that'd be great. 
Yeah, he, uh, he died. Well, what good is a Savior who dies? The point of superhero movies is that the Savior comes and doesn't die. The point of superhero movies is that the Superman almost dies, right? But doesn't. If Superman dies, then there's no salvation. Well, it's a little bit more than that. It's not just it sounds dumb. That's more the, the foolishness that the Greeks view it as. It's also the reason why he died. The reason he died is because you were so bad that he had to die. Okay, well, you can take your Savior, have your Savior. I would prefer a Savior that didn't talk about how bad I was. This is the way that the Jews thought, and this is the way that many people today think. It's offensive to say that the Messiah had to come and suffer because it shows how wicked and offensive we are to God in our sinful state. So only a small number of the Jews, but a large number of the God-fearing Greeks accept what Paul says and join themselves to Paul and Silas and therefore to the church. The God-fearing Greeks were people who had not grown up in Judaism. They were people who realized that they were sinners and feared God and therefore began to change how they lived their lives. So they knew they had a need for a Savior like Jesus, one who would die for their sins. And so kids, having grown up in the church... You must know that there's a Savior. The Sunday school answer for everything is Jesus, right? The Jews had to have known they needed a Savior. The question is, why did they want a Savior? The Jews wanted a Savior that would save them from the Romans. What do we want in America today in the church? A Savior who will save us from the federal government. That's what we want. And after that, also from the state government. Am I wrong? You be quiet. How old are you? Yeah, you're not old enough to answer that yet. <laughs> what do we want a Savior from? 
in the church today There's a temptation for us to be just like the Jews. What we want is a Savior who will give us the good things we want. Not a Savior that, who, that will point out to us the depth of our need that goes way beyond what we want. And especially not a Savior that then doesn't end up providing the things that we want. Wait a minute. The Savior came, and I'm still living in Thessalonica under the Romans? What's the point of having a Savior come? I'm still poor. I still don't like my school. I still have parents that drive me crazy. I still have all these things that I was looking forward to the Savior fixing so that all this world could revolve around me. Is that what you want from a Savior? Or do you want a Savior who will save you? Not from being slightly less filthy rich than you wanted to be, but a Savior who had to suffer and die because your sins were as scarlet. Jesus had to suffer and die. The Messiah had to come and suffer and die. And all through the Old Testament we see that. And now we have the New Testament and we read it and we know this is why. You read Romans, this is why. You read Acts, this is why. You can't hear any part of the Bible without realizing it's about our sins, it's about God's holiness, it's salvation from our sins, he had to come, he had to suffer, he had to die. And then what does it say? He had to rise again. He had to. Also, clear, from the Old Testament. Here's only a a few of them. Psalm 16.10 You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Or Isaiah 53.12 Therefore I I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Or earlier in verse 10, render himself as a guilt offering 
next time we study 1 Kings, we'll be looking at the offerings when they bring the ark into the temple. And it says that the offerings were so many they couldn't count them. Animals. And what happened to those animals? They were slaughtered. And so when it says that the Messiah will be an offering, that he will be poured out to death, it's clear, isn't it? Clear that he will die. Look back at verse 12. I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. You've got to be paying attention, don't you? Because he poured himself out to death, therefore I will reward him. But he's dead. What are you going to do? Make a mural for him? Sew his deeds onto a great tapestry, right? No. He will divide the booty with the strong. Oh. Sounds awful lot like he's alive, doesn't it? But why? Well, because if he didn't, his death was completely in vain and we would have no hope for the future. In Isaiah 25, 8, we read, He will swallow up death for all time and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. He will swallow up death. Is tied to he will remove the reproach of his people. What is our reproach? Our reproach is twofold. One, our sin. And two, the mocking of the world for putting our hope in a Savior who then dies. And when he comes back, when he conquers death, he wipes away both reproaches. No longer can the world mock and say, your Savior died. Because our Savior rose. And no longer do we have anything to be ashamed of because our sin has been wiped away. He has not just died because of our sin, but he has proven that the penalty has been paid by coming back. Isaiah 26, 19, we see the same theme. Your dead will live 
their corpses will rise. This is a stirring prophecy, right? You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Death came into the world because of sin. It's not until death is conquered that the consequences of sin are fully cleared away. This is Paul's sermon. The Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. If he came and he just suffered, and maybe not to death, you know, like, maybe just most of the way there, then in the end, death hasn't been conquered. In the end, there is no hope. Because we keep dying, right? For us, this means that we are people who not only believe that Jesus came to earth and died for our sins, but we are people who believe he was raised on the third day according to the promise. We just said this earlier in the service as we were reciting the creed, right? That he rose again is one of the things that we say we believe. He was not like somebody who is willing to die to bring attention to a cause. You know, this still happens occasionally. You'll see headlines, news articles. Someone pouring gasoline on themselves and lighting themselves on fire and they die. And it's awful. Why would anybody do that? To draw attention to themselves and to the cause that they stand for. To protest and say, this needs to change. But in the end, all that happens is they're dead. Unless that that convinces other people to to make some sort of change, right? But the death accomplishes nothing. Jesus Christ was not just trying to draw attention to the fact that he was great or something. He wasn't just trying to draw attention to the fact that we're sinners. Jesus did not live his life so that we could see how impressive we are capable of being as humans. Finally ending up dead like everybody else who ever felt impressive. Now you think, well, yeah, that's silly. Why would, it, you know, why would anybody think that? And I say, well, there are churches across this country who are filled with people who believe that that's what Jesus was a good model for what we could become if we simply put our minds to it. If we simply look to Jesus as a model of how great man can be, you know, and and try to live like him. That'd be so good, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, trying to live like Jesus would be good. 
But if that's all that Jesus is, your faith is in vain. You have no hope. Because you try and try and try and try to be like Jesus, and you're just not. And then you die. And if Jesus just died at the end anyway, what's the point? But he didn't just die. He also rose. He didn't die and leave us hopeless, knowing that sin and its effects still haven't been conquered. Paul makes this argument. You can see in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And he ends that argument by saying, if that's true, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Here again, many of the Jews were not impressed. Some of them didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. Those who were of the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. <clears throat> Others of them probably thought that they would be resurrected to, do, to new life but had no notion that their Messiah needed to die and be raised in order to accomplish their resurrection. I want to tell you a story. One time I was talking to a man. I think I was giving him a ride somewhere. And I asked him what his biggest problem was. He said, catching a break. Catching a break. You know, he just couldn't catch a break in his life. Every time he turned around, something bad was happening to him that just caused him to lose what progress he had made towards a successful, fulfilling, happy life. He just couldn't catch a break. That was his biggest problem. I just want you to realize that these kinds of Conversations are always filled with openings to proclaim what Paul did, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I explained to this man that my biggest problem was that I regularly sin against a holy God and that one day I'm going to die and face him. It only takes one sentence. That's probably all I said. My biggest problem is this. His response was, I guess that's everybody's biggest problem. And so I asked him how he dealt with that. And he said, repent and try harder. Repent and try harder. Now, I then asked him how that was going for him. This man who couldn't catch a break. He said, not very good. I asked him how he handled the fact that he still sins. That was my understanding of what he meant by not very good. The repent and try harder was 
in dealing with the biggest problem, the actual biggest problem, right? <clears throat> he said, I guess that's what Jesus is for. Now, is this man a Christian? I put it to you. You know nothing about him, you know. Just making a judgment, does this man need to hear the gospel or not? After all, he knows his biggest problem is that he sins against a holy God. Uh, he knows he needs to repent and try harder. He knows that Jesus Christ has to be the answer. I doubted that this man was a Christian. And this is what I mean by everybody around us. You talk to him, and many, many of them will declare themselves to be Christians. Many of them will say, oh yeah, I need a Savior. The Jews knew they needed a Savior. They were looking forward to it, right? I didn't think this man was a Christian. Remember Jesus said, Matthew 721, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. <clears throat> but what do you say to somebody like this man I was talking to? What do you do with him? I asked him why Jesus was the answer. <clears throat> I asked him how God could forgive him just because of Jesus. Which was just a, a word or maybe a name to him, right? And he had no idea. He had no answer for why Jesus would be the solution. So I explained to him that Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die. He had to suffer and die. You see, that's... The, the Jews needed to hear that. How could they not know that? How could anyone who says, well, I guess Jesus is the answer to my problem, you know, when I, I have a problem, I sin against the Holy God, I guess it's Jesus, you know. The Jews are like, yeah, I need a Savior. I'll tell you another story. I know of a Christian man who, on reading the latest scientific discoveries and <clears throat> studies and uh, seeing the trajectory of technology and medicine, thinks that in the near future, we will be able to live forever. And he doesn't understand why we will need heaven at that point. He sees a crisis for Christianity coming. Because what's the point of proclaiming that there's a heaven, you know, if, if we can live forever? We're going to be able to solve all diseases and cancers and solve aging. Technology is a marvel. Well, first of all, 
he's ridiculous. But let's set to the side his silliness for believing that technology is going to solve aging, all cancer, all death, that we're going to be able to live forever. Okay? Let's, let's just set that to the side. What is the problem aside from his gullibility? He thinks that this life is all there is. He's a Christian. Someone who goes to church, believes in Jesus, says, yeah, Jesus had to die for my sins, but he doesn't have any concept that there's anything more than this life. He thinks it more explicitly than most of us. But I want to ask you, how much do you think that everything is about this life? To many of us, as we live our lives, this is the same basic assumption that we make. This is your only life. Live it to the fullest. But Jesus had to rise or our enemies, sin and death, will defeat us. You guys see how that obliterates that worldview? You can't live day in, day out as though this is the only life. You can't live as though this is your best life now. You, you can't live selfishly and believe that the Messiah had to suffer and be raised from the dead. You can't end up thinking that if you could just solve all the problems in this life, that this place would be heaven. This place is not heaven. It needs the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It needs to be remade without the consequences of sin. We need to be remade without our sins. So Christ had to suffer and rise again. Let us live our lives according to those truths. Let us not be like the Jews who, oh yeah, I need a Savior. But it was just for this life. It was just for the problems of the here and now. Let us put our hope in a Savior who died for our sins and rose that we might be remade in a new and better life.